0: Entrepreneurship has become a global phenomenon. Uncover the stories of entrepreneurs and investors worldwide, from Sub-Saharan Africa to Silicon Valley and beyond, here on the Global Startup Movement. Now, here's your host, Andrew Berkowitz. I am here with Sajith Pai, who is a director at Bloom Ventures, which is a VC firm in India with $150 million under management, where he works with the startups in their portfolio across media, edtech, and commerce. Sajidh, thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Andrew. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, it's good that
0: we finally got to connect. I first came across you on Twitter, actually. Uh, you showed up in my... Recommended people to follow list. Oh, did I? And I just, yeah, I just saw your smiling face. I was like, wow, this this looks like a nice guy. And Uh so I clicked on your profile, and I realized, oh wait, you know, he's doing some really interesting stuff, and there is a lot of very um, valuable information in your blog. So figured I'd get you on the show and uh, have a quick chat about the Indian startup ecosystem.
1: Oh, thank you, Andrew. Love to be here.
0: Yeah. Awesome. So let's start off with really, you know, your years leading up towards your transition from the times of India Group into your, your new role with Bloom. Can you kind of tell us a little bit about your story in the transition and just kind of, I'd be curious to know about how India as, as a country and as, as a technology ecosystem was, was evolving in, in your latter years. It's
1: like two questions in one, but I'll, I'll take the first one. So the Times of India group is India's largest media company, sort of like USS Gannet and NYT rolled into one. They have India's oldest and most prestigious newspaper, but kind of evolved from there to get into television news, the radio, they're India's largest radio and out-of-home network, and now expanding into internet as well. So my role, I worked across multiple divisions of the group, joining it out of uh, my B-school, but towards the end, uh, I was kind of beginning to kind of uh, get a little bored as it happens. And I, I kind of like variety. I like to do multiple things. Early days, I could kind of move on from one thing to the other when it didn't work out. As you get uh, older and you get more senior, the less degrees of freedom. So that began to shave And... Towards the end, um, you know, as as, as kind of uh, two thousand eleven onwards, India is kind of beginning to see some very interesting developments in the startup ecosystem. Uh, lots more startups, led by Flipkarts of the world, which got acquired by Walmart. Then, uh, then the last two years, we've had something very interesting happening, whereby uh, a telco network called Geo revolutionized India's uh, telecom ecosystem by bringing in ultra cheap broadband, and which has got like. 2x more people onto the internet now and has revolutionized the way people consume internet, the way uh, people consume data, etc. Data, for example, has like the prices, for example, have like come down by 90% and data consumption has gone up by 10x of that. So it's incredible what's happened. And thanks to that, there's been a lot of excitement in the Indian startup ecosystem. So along the way, one thing led to another and I kind of started interviewing with Bloom Ventures. I knew Karthik Reddy, who's a partner of Bloom uh, from before. He he and I overlapped at the Times Group for about a year and a half. And um, when Karthik reached out to me and I knew about Bloom Ventures and soon uh, the interviews happened. I met the partners and soon I found myself in in Bloom Ventures. So that's sort of uh, my journey. I like to write a lot. Uh, I like to write and think through uh, what's happening. And uh, it couple of my uh, blogs have got uh, reasonable traction within the startup ecosystem, especially a framework where I look at India and look at it in terms of India 1, India 2, and India 3. So just to kind of elaborate, India 1 is the most developed part of India. That's roughly about $100 million large, sort of like Mexico, similar per capita income, Mexico, Turkey, so $10,000 per, uh, per household, you know, that level, very comfortable with the internet, English speaking. That's important as well. The next 100 million is a bit like Philippines, barring the fact that they don't speak good English. Uh, They just got onto the internet, roughly $3,000 per capita income. That's the next 100 million. And after that, India is uh, interesting because it's got a very wealthy India, but it's also got a very large poor India. And that's about a billion large. And they're really not even $1,000 per capita income. That's a bit more like reasonably compares with, say, developing the, the underdeveloped parts of Africa. So that's that's the way I kind of like to look at India. And that metaphor has become increasingly useful and valuable for a whole bunch of startups and VCs exploring the Indian ecosystem. So that's, that's, that's broadly. So India has got enormously exciting in the last two to three years. But the excitement has been bubbling for a while. And uh, right now we are seeing a whole host of high-quality startups. The number of unicorns out of India has kind of doubled. Last year, we had eight, including exciting B2B startups. And what's interesting is we're beginning to see companies which have scaled from zero to unicorn status in three years. Udan, for example, is a fascinating B2B startup, sort of like the Amazon of B2B e-commerce in India. We're beginning to see a whole host of these startups emerge to attack uniquely Indian problems, and they're beginning to really scale fast. All in all, it's a tremendously exciting time to be in India. Lots happening. And uh, for me... To be in Bloom, which is sort of one of the leading early stage funds, is to get a great vantage point into future ideas, future thoughts. And uh, it's is, is really a great place to sit and observe and think and write and participate. So that's, that's, that's a bit about me. That's a bit about the Indian ecosystem.
0: Yeah, and I think it's really interesting the way you split up India into India 1, India 2, India 3. I think it definitely reminds me of Nigeria and Africa, but it seems like India 1 is probably a much bigger Population size than Nigeria one is. Mm-hmm. I guess we're at the point, or uh, yeah, so we're at the, we're at the point where India two you were saying is going to start breaking up into India one in terms of the disposable income that they have available. I mean, is that kind of the uh, inflection point that we're hitting?
1: Yeah, so that's kind of the big thesis uh, that's uh, kind of got honed and uh, kind of got co-created over the past couple of years. Primarily led by geo, So India has got Jio fight, so to say. Imagine someone doing a delivery job for Amazon or Swiggy. So that's classic India too. They don't speak English well. They're doing largely blue collar jobs. So folks like this, uh, plumbers, etc. have got kind of got onto the internet and they're consuming the internet in a very, very different way. There's a lot more voice. There's a lot more video because they don't read as well. Uh, they, they, they don't even read uh, Hindi as well uh, or uh, the other Indian languages like Tamil or Telugu as well, but they can watch video. So what's happened is incredible increase in video consumption. YouTube has really become this mammoth one in India. So for example, in India, WhatsApp is about two ninety four million mouse. So that's sort of the Indian internet. Maybe the the number of people on the Indian internet would be around maybe in the lower three hundreds.
0: WhatsApp is an example of, you, you would say, an app that was able to capture all three
1: tiers? Wow. So I wrote about this. There are very, very few apps that have been able to capture all three tiers. Mm. But let's say two and a half tiers. Okay. So sort of like India 1, India 2, and the upper reaches of India 3. So I think WhatsApp is certainly that app that's been able to capture. The second would be YouTube. And then there is, there's a, a very interesting set of Chinese apps called ShareIt and MX Player. MX Play is Korean, actually. So what they're doing is offline internet. They make the online internet available offline for sharing, etc. So instantly, India is one of the few countries where YouTube allows offline saving of videos because of bandwidth and because, like, for example, there are a lot of people who uh, work in office in blue-collar roles. They're able to access the internet there. But when they go home, they're not able to access the internet. So India has all these unique, interesting problems. And Nigeria, for example, is 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 a fascinating parallel that you draw. And what I've done, in fact, is try and follow a lot of interesting Nigerian uh, startup thinkers, VCs, etc. Because uh, increasingly, I think the road to India 3, just as the road to India 1 led through uh, Palo Alto and Menlo Park, the road to India 3 may well lead through Lagos and, uh, you know, uh, kind of markets in Africa.
0: That makes sense. Well, uh, if you're looking for people, so this guy, Victor Asimota, he is a really great thinker in the Nigerian ecosystem. And, he put out this tweet a couple months ago, which your blog post reminded me of, and it was something I I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was something along the lines of if you want to reach a hundred million dollars na- or a hundred million naira sales in Nigeria, there's only two ways to do it. Mm-hmm. You can sell to one million people for one hundred naira, mm-hmm. or you can sell to one person for one hundred million naira. Interesting. Uh, and th- those are the only two markets. Mm-hmm. The middle, you know, the middle is. Where there are little barriers to entry, but it's the 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 market in the middle is too diverse mm-hmm. and too differing. You you can't establish a product market fit mm-hmm. and have it work across the entire middle.
1: That's fascinating. I'm going to check this out. Yeah, yeah. that's fascinating. Actually, yeah, I think there's some interesting patterns can draw. Yeah,
0: and what made me think of that is when you were talking about how product market fit doesn't translate across India one into India 2 and in and India 3 yeah. and, and maybe it's it seemed like India 2 and India three mm-hmm. it, it might be easier to bridge that gap but the the English tax so so can you dive into the English tax yeah. and what that yeah. is because I think it's an important an important reason why uh, people aren't able to make that jump
1: yeah A lot of my exploration of the Indian market has been through the lens of English and what it means to be English-speaking. So what's fascinating is uh, what what, uh, we we sort of had this British rule of India for about 200 years and one of the legacies that's left us with is is knowledge of English. But that's kind of restricted to a very small percentage of Indian population. But because a lot of... uh, uh, you know increasingly westerners or uh, you know uh, people from other countries interact with indians and typically they, they all think indians speak very good english but well that's only about 25 million of in- indians who speak and write good english there are about um, five times that who kind of speak passable english like they're the people who work in hotels for example or your taxi drivers who can kind of kind of broadly get it they can actually sometimes read reasonable english words like passport and you know, stuff like that office etc but broadly, beyond this $130 million, that's really only 10% of India, not everyone speaks English. But the fact is, there's a huge premium on English. So if you're an English-speaking waiter, you probably get low white-collar salaries because you work in the five-star hotels or you work in very boutique-independent, high-end restaurants as opposed to, let's say, or wait staff who doesn't speak good English. So uh, what English does is uh, there's a premium of uh, as much as... Uh, 200% uh, of or, or, or salary, uh, that means three times the income for someone who's working, in, for example, in, in a semi blue collar role, like working in a gym or work in a hotel as a waiter, etc. And what it also does is that because a lot of the information that's created in India is created in English, if you are not comfortable with English, you also get locked out of the internet ecosystem. And that's a heavy tax to pay. Not only are you cut out of the economy, you also don't have the means to enter the economy. So uh, English has become a very interesting and what I call it a new caste marker in India. So as the old caste markers of, uh, you know, we had this caste system, which is abominable and that kind of moved away. They have become new caste and class markers and English really sits at the heart of it. But what's happened is for a long time, Indian Internet said, "Okay, look, that market doesn't matter because they don't really spend as much. It's better to focus on English because and when I was working in the Times of India is very interesting. So compared the audience that we had to a Hindi newspaper, we had like a 12x premium. That means an average Indian English reader was 12 times more valuable than a Hindi reader. And we had two newspapers and we saw this. This one, I started working. But by the time I ended working, the gap was only 4x. And that's fascinating. So what happened is the premium had come down. Premium between an English and language reader had come down. What effectively that's meant is that a whole host of internet properties started getting created because they said, look, we can try and monetize these people. Earlier, there was no way to monetize this audience. Even if we had like 50 million Hindi speaking readers, how do you monetize them? Because that's not a very affluent audience. But now As these audience got affluent, as they started knocking at the doors, so so the English language as a marker has become less and less important. And a lot more content is beginning to get created in Hindi. Helps that a lot of it is video content because uh, while people can't read Hindi, but they can listen and appreciate Hindi. So the English tax is beginning to get less and less important, but it's still a huge reason to kind of understand why India is the way it is. And the best startups, like for example, we had a company called ShareChat or even China's apps such as uh, TikTok have really taken advantage of uh, the lack of uh, quality content in Indian languages, and they've kind of offered that, and have started growing at scale now.
0: Hmm. That's interesting. That's very interesting. Speaking of why things are the way they are in India, can you talk about the nature of the funding funnel? I've read in your blog post about E2E networks listed on the, the public exchange in India. Yeah. I believe they listed at the point that they'd be raising a Series A round, unless I misunderstood yeah.
1: that. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so Indian market for funding is, is interesting. It's highly evolved on one side because, uh, and, and what's particularly interesting is if you compare us to even a more affluent economy, let's say Turkey or uh, Mexico or or similar such uh, ten to fifteen 000, eighteen thousand uh, dollar markets. Like even take South Korea. I would say the number of VC professionals in India, the number of people who actively participate in the startup ecosystem is far bigger. Of course, the population is much larger as well. A lot of it has to do with the fact that the Indians are very heavily represented in Silicon Valley and have done wonderfully well there. And they kind of build bridges back. But what it also means is we've kind of evolved in, in, in certain funny ways. So uh, Matrix, Sequoia, Lightspeed all have their India offices. There are also a whole host of Indian VCs, such as Bloom, Orioles, India Quotient, etc., who have kind of come in. But what happens is a lot of them look to U.S. Uh, markets. And, and the way the VC power laws work is that typically one out of like 2025 20, deals really goes on to become a success. So um, in the early days, um, before 2016, uh, not all Indian startups grew because the ma- India One itself was half of what it is today. So uh, so and and if you were focusing on the Indian market, you typically didn't grow well. So what it meant was very few startups were typically the very attractive VC type thing. You know, there's, for example, flipkarts of the world, but then how many flipkarts can you support? So as the market started consolidating and as a market thing, they got to a point where the funding funnel just about n- narrowed or disappeared if you weren't growing at scale. So that's what I kind of talk about in my one that there are a lot of angel investors in India. There are a lot of reasonably high quality uh, seed to what's called pre-A slash accelerators available in India. But as you kind of uh, grow past that, hit product market fit and kind of move into series A, beyond series A, the funding funnel just narrows sharply to become a choke point. And historically, there haven't been any great Indian series B funds. By Series C, they get what really, we really don't, again, have the classic Series C venture fund. We have the classic Series C private equity funds, which don't really understand our business. So that's been a huge gap. And for Bloom, the challenge has been that we have had a couple of businesses. E2E is one, and then there's a business called Exotel, which is uh, really large and it's, it's quite profitable now. It's been profitable for the last three years, but they don't grow at hyperscale. They don't grow at like 60% or 70% year on year they grow at 20 percent like, you know, but but they've been growing consistently at that pace for the last five years, six years, because the classic series B venture capital funder was missing. So uh, there wasn't too much appreciation for these business models. And that's been one challenge. So Bloom, one way in which we have kind of kind of tried to resolve this is to force some of these businesses to go IPO. And uh, so sort of the NASDAQ equivalent of a of a board, what's called NSC Emerge, has kind of come out in the last few years, which enables VCs to get exits. So we're trying to have conversations with some of our portfolio companies, especially the fund one, which we started in 2011. So for a lot of them, NSC Emerge becomes a viable exit option. But by the way, what I kind of described right now is beginning to slowly change. There are a whole host of exciting Chinese VCs who have kind of come into India. (laughs) <laughs> Shunwei, then there's Japanese B next, etc. Who have kind of come in to bridge this gap, and I think they seem to get the sca- the the these businesses somewhat as good, if not better, than many Indian VCs do. So that's that's been particularly interesting for me as well. Yeah. yeah.
0: Well, it's interesting to hear that. So as you were talking, my next question was going to be, "Wow, I'm surprised that China isn't coming in to fill that gap, but it sounds like they're already on the way." Yeah, yeah.
1: And one of the big themes of the last few years is how. China has made very aggressive overtures. The Chinese startup ecosystem has made very aggressive overtures into India. Just to kind of give an instance, for example, the fastest growing app at present is TikTok. It's there are two x almost two x downloads as much as Facebook today. If you look at, for example, uh, India's largest handset, it's Xiaomi. Okay, uh, it's, it's it's not Samsung anymore. Uh, they probably tell two x as many handsets as uh, as, as Samsung. Um, now, we talked about software. I gave you an example of hardware. Now, let's look at the funding ecosystem. If you look at, for example, uh, the, the most aggressive players are really uh, the Chinese players like Morningside, shunwei Wei, etc. Stra- so, what, what they do is they, they kind of see, because they've been in the Chinese ecosystem and they've kind of seen business start to scale. They see India as being where China was in 2005, five six. Some businesses, maybe 8, 9. And they say, look, we saw China really grow gangbusters from you know, 2008, 9, 2009, 2019. You know, maybe India is not going to get there as fast, maybe not grow as much, but hey, it's going to grow certainly. And what they've done is really started looking at India in a very focused manner. And uh, we get a lot of uh, interest from Chinese VCs, and not just we, I mean, I'm sure the Indian ecosystem gets. They all want to talk to us. They want to talk to our companies. So so it's. I would say that it's interesting how uh, while at the early stages, like in the early 2000s, India looked to the valley, but increasingly today, Indians look to China, look far east. Japan, too, has, uh, you know, it's interesting. So uh, Bloom, for example, has very strong connections with Japan. Uh, so we have a few Japanese funds as LPs. We have very strong partnerships. We co-invest with a lot of Japanese LPs. So that's one small thing that differentiates Bloom, the extent of our Japanese relationships. But it's really that India once looked up to the West, uh, but now we're increasingly looking east. It's interesting that the most uh, prestigious scholarship for young folks in India today is a Schwarzman Scholarship, not the Rhodes Scholarship, and that says something. I mean, I, it's
0: that's exactly what I'm seeing. Pretty much every emerging or frontier market, yeah, uh, same exact same exact thing is happening. Yeah. They're looking more to China. They're starting to teach Mandarin instead of English yeah. in the primary schools. Yeah. Chinese money is coming in. Uh, abundantly, <laughs> um, so yeah. I mean, it's happening all over now. Does that create? So you mentioned an English tax. Hmm. Is there any aspect of like that for Mandarin, or like how does the Mandarin language yeah. or has has it kind of
1: entered into the the society? Not at all. I I keep hearing that in Pakistan, uh, which is actually far more uh, kind of connected to China. Uh, Pakistan is our neighbor, and there's like Mandarin learning has become a little popular. But in India, nothing at all. In fact, if anything, the Chinese have uh, succeeded because they've adapted to India very well. In fact, they, I mean, all of their products are customized for India. They're customized for Indian languages such as Hindi, Bengali, you know, uh, Tamil, Telugu. Uh, and it's interesting that Hindi is only about 400 million speakers. So only about a third, of, a third of India, really. There are lots of large Indian languages, like Telugu is one, about 80 million people speak it in India. It's huge. It's in the south of India. So Bengali, about 130 million, I think more than 130 million. Bangladesh itself is 130 million. And another 70, 80 million is the Indian part of, in, in Indian state of Bengal. So about 200 million speak Bengali in the world. So these are large languages. And what the Chinese have done is they've just localized systematically they kind of localized. Of to un- they, they, in fact, it's very interesting. So a lot of Chinese startup entrepreneurs who come and travel through India, they travel into remote parts of India. I don't think, enough Indian VCs do this. Uh, we travel to China and the Valley, but they come to India and travel into small town India, into India two, India three. They understand nuance new- so They understand challenges. and they, they know that there are parts of China which think similar to India, and they're able to map saying that, hey, this is what will happen. And... Uh, And sort of they're beginning to see this as an inflection point because as one uh, startup entrepreneur told me, you need mobile penetration to hit a certain level, smartphone penetration to hit a certain level. You need bandwidth costs to fall to a certain level. And three, you need a very, very uh, frictionless payment mechanism to emerge, online payment mechanism to emerge. And when all three happen, you will see a lot of startups coming and a lot of growth happening, not just e-commerce, in social, many other things. And that's really what we're seeing in India. In the last Two years, all of that has come together. Smartphone penetration, for example, is nearly three hundred plus three hundred million plus. We have had geo effect whereby the bandwidth costs have like one tenth of what they were. And uh, thirdly, there is a very frictionless payment mechanism called UPI, which has kind of emerged. In fact, I can actually WhatsApp payments to my friends and we kind of use it all the time, it's it's very smooth and it just happens in seconds. So given all of this, the Chinese are saying that this is an inflection point. Let's kind of move in on here. And they're really beginning to do that.
0: Mm. So what, what's it like living in New <laughs> You live live in Noida and you you commute to Delhi?
1: No, in fact, uh, it's kind of interesting. You live in D.C. and Maryland and Virginia. uh, It's kind of seamless traveling through, you know, between D.C., Maryland, Virginia. So a bit like that. So Delhi is actually a very small city state. But it has Gurgaon on one side, which is part of the Indian state of Haryana sort of like, uh, uh, like, like maybe Virgin, uh, like Maryland. And uh, there's Uttar Pradesh, which has got Noida and which is sort of like maybe uh, like, like Virginia. So, uh, so I live in Noida and, uh, and it's very easy to kind of commute into Delhi. It just takes about 30 minutes. Noida is a, it's not a very large city, but it's part of the Delhi urban conurbation, So, which is fairly large, it's 20 million large. It's like the, so it's a good place to live because good schools, good thing. It's got a reasonable startup ecosystem. The Paytm, which is one of India's largest unicorns, is based there. There's another company in the payment space called Pine Labs, which is going to be unicorn, if not already unicorn there. So there are a lot of exciting startups there. Gurgaon and Noida are two big startup hubs, uh, both are you know, part of Delhi. And Delhi is the second largest startup hub after Bangalore in India. But that said, uh, you know, uh, every Indian city, uh, even though it's India One, India One Alpha, what I call, you have infrastructure that sometimes is not on par with the West. Uh, but over, I mean, and it's not even on par with China, for example, which has exceptional infrastructure, I would say. But uh, all in all, uh, it's 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 fairly comfortable living. So Bangalore, I would say, is is uh, is, is equivalent of Silicon Valley in India, and uh, so sort of if you look at China, for example like Beijing and Shenzhen. So Beijing's probably got a larger uh, startup ecosystem. So that would be like maybe Bangalore and uh, Shenzhen uh, uh, would be like what Delhi is really. So um, so somehow, uh, so it's Bangalore uh, and Delhi Gurgaon uh, and somehow Bombay, even though it's India's financial capital, a bit like Shanghai gets left out. There are some exciting startups in Bombay, but the really exciting, uh, high-growing, fast-growing, big unicorn startups have kind of given Bombay a miss. That's a bit about the Indian startup ecosystem. But there are also smaller cities like Pune, Hyderabad, which, which have their own startup hubs as well. Like you have, for example, Boulder, which is emerging as a startup hub or, a, you know, so Salt Lake City, et cetera, but, or Boston. But uh, these are much, much, much smaller hubs. It's really Bangalore and Delhi, which is which is really the two big hubs in India.
0: Awesome. So, Sujith, we're going to finish off with a quick fire round. Four questions up to 60 seconds per so, answer. Good. Sound good? Sure, sure. What is your favorite business book and why?
1: Okay, uh, it's High Output Management by Andy Grove because uh, it, it's kind of the single book that I recommend to every startup founder or, uh, or even a fellow VC uh, because it's just written from first principles and elucidates a lot of management principles were not clear to me. So it's Andy Grove's High Output Management.
0: I've been getting that a lot in the show recently over the oh, past couple of months. I've got it, I've got yeah, it a few yeah. times, but uh, definitely a great yeah. book. So if I was coming to Delhi, uh-huh. Uh, what would you recommend to me as the best restaurant or bar in the city?
1: <laughs> so the uh, the highest rated restaurant is something called Indian Accent. It's sort of like Indian cuisine, rethought from uh, like, you know, the principles of molecular gastronomy and uh, like, like, like the f- first principles. But really the fun restaurant to go to would be a restaurant called Cafe Lota, uh, which is sort of attached to a museum. And they have representative foods from all parts of India. So that's where I really take people who come. Because in one restaurant, you can of can sample multiple amounts of varieties of Indian Indian food. So no alcohol there, but it's really a fun restaurant. So I would say Cafe Lota, at the Crafts Museum is what I recommend. What is your favorite place in India to visit outside of Delhi? <laughs> okay. So I uh, come from the Indian state of Kerala. And uh, so Kerala is in the extreme south of India, very close to where Sri Lanka is. And I'm sort of biased, but it's really a wonderful, beautiful state. And what you can really do there is really take a boat, and people do that. They charter a boat and sail the canals of Kerala, they call the backwaters. And you can just spend sort of three, four days. Unfortunately, the internet is still there. It's, it's, it's sort of, Kerala is a very developed part of India. So you can't get away from the internet, but you can hopefully switch off your phone and WhatsApp and you can just relax and just, just kind of sail along the backwaters. So Kerala, I think, is my favorite, favorite kind of destination.
0: Yeah. And final question What is your favorite thing about living in Noida?
1: Okay, so what's my favorite thing about living in Noida? So I think the open spaces. So Noida is strangely uh, an Indian city, which is which looks very different because it's, it's heavily planned. So uh, the, the, it, it's kind of open and spread out a lot more than Indian cities. So I kind of love the space. I like to go on my jogs it's a little less uh, uh, densely populated. So uh, and I'm not sure how it's for women, but uh, I find it and the openness and the thing of it, it's quite interesting. So a lot more outdoorsy stuff can be done living in Noida as opposed to say Bombay or uh, Central Delhi. Yeah, so that's that's my favorite, favorite thing of living in Noida.
0: Awesome. Well, Sajith Pai, director at Bloom Ventures, thank you so much for joining us. Thank
1: you, Andrew. It's been a pleasure. Really enjoyed this. Thank you so much.
0: Thanks for listening. Be sure to add Andrew on Snapchat at Burke. that's A-N-D-B-E-R-K, to see firsthand a day in the life of an entrepreneur in cities all around the world.